Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? Part We are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina, and a debate coach. And tonight, I am very excited to welcome Dr. David Duvell uh, to the show. Dr. Duvell is going to be helping us discuss the November-December 2019 LD resolution, which reads, Resolve, the United States ought to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. Dr. Duvell is the editor of a journal entitled Logos. He's also uh, the assistant professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas, and he holds a Ph.D. in historical theology from Fordham University in New York. Dave, welcome to What's the Res? Thank you very much, Josh. Glad to be with you. So glad that you said yes to this. I, I am I continue to be amazed at how gracious people have been when I've reached out seemingly out of the blue over the internet and say, Hey, would you be willing to have a conversation with me on this show? <laughs> well, I think that's that's what we need in this country is more conversations about the about the tough issues and re- real debates rather than just quarrels. Uh, that's right. It's it's really easy to have quarrels. It's really hard to actually <laughs> listen to people enough that you can articulate a good response to them somehow. That's right. Well, do help us with uh, with your background. I know I've I've become a little bit familiar with your work through your articles on the imaginative conservative. I thoroughly enjoyed that project. Uh, but help us just help us know a little bit about you. Where are you from? How did you end up uh, at the University of St. Thomas? What's your background? Give us the story. Yeah. Well, I I grew up in northern Indiana, just south of South Bend, the home of the University of Notre Dame. That's what most people know. Uh, and I went to college at Calvin in Michigan. It was Calvin College when I went there. It's just become Calvin University this summer. And I studied uh, uh, philosophy and English literature. I nearly had minors in French and, and uh, theology as well. And I decided to go to graduate school for theology at Fordham University in the Bronx in New York. Uh, and there I studied uh, a variety of aspects of, of the history of Christianity. I took some history courses and philosophy courses on the side of my theology. I wrote a, a doctoral dissertation on John Henry Newman, who is one of the, the newest saints in the Catholic Church. Um, and from there, I came uh, to the University of St. Thomas, where I am now. I had met a, a pretty philosopher at Fordham, and uh, she and I got engaged. She got a job here first, uh, and then we got married, and I came, and I've been teaching in the Department of Catholic Studies, which is an interdisciplinary Catholic humanities program, and I've been working with the journal Logos, which is an interdisciplinary uh, Catholic journal of, of thought. Uh, so I've, I've done a number of things intellectually, and I've probably specialized most in writing about about uh, historical figures from the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, particularly many people will know uh, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton uh, and figures like that. Uh, but I've been interested in questions of Catholic social thought and economics, um, and that's that's how I came to be writing for the the Imaginative Conservative. They asked me if I would 
if I would be willing to write a fairly regular column dealing with politics and economics, and I decided that that's, that sounded like a good deal to me. So oh, they, here I am. That's fantastic. And uh, the, the, the folks at the Imagine Conservative really fa- are, are really wonderful. I, uh, I went to Hillsdale College for undergrad, and I know just after getting out of undergrad, Dr. Brad Berzer was incredibly gracious and helped me. He helped me get a first article published with them, and I've, yeah. I've really enjoyed uh, just watching. What it's such an interesting group of writers they have managed to recruit, uh, and and for all, uh, but uh, quite diverse within within their fold. Uh, now, I am curious, uh, since you were at Calvin College, do you know uh, a guy named Micah Watson? I do indeed. I've, uh, I've done several, uh, several conferences with him through the Acton Institute and Liberty Fund, and uh, I'm a great admirer of Micah's. In fact, I, you know, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. He has, uh, he has co-written a book on C.S. Lewis and, and political thought, and he is, uh, he is a kind man and a Christian gentleman and, and a very, sh- very sharp fellow. He he is. I I met him. Uh, I I'd heard a podcast with uh, the uh, uh, it was the City of Man podcast. Did an interview with him uh, at the Cicero not the Ciceronia Society uh, at a different at a political science conference. And um, but then I got to meet him at uh, an Acton. No, it was a Liberty Fund colloquium on social justice of all things. And yeah, yeah. Uh, he was he was he actually came on the show and. Uh, he was. Uh, I, I was really curious to pick his brain about a being a Protestant who held to natural law uh, as as a framework, and that was. We had a really fun episode uh, about yeah. that. Well, uh, I, I so help me just a little bit with. Uh, you used the phrase interdisciplinary several times a moment ago. I know. So I teach high school, and most of my students uh, believe that the route to success is a specialized route. And your story seems to really push back against that a little bit. What, what does it mean to be interdisciplinary? And, and is that a, yeah. have you found that to be a valuable thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, my, my framework, I, you said I wrote a dissertation on John Henry Newman. His famous work, The Idea of a University, outlines what a true university education, what really what a true education is. And it's the development of a philosophical habit of mind. And, and that involves studying a number of things and see, basically developing what you might call a worldview. And that requires understanding that if you specialize in something, you can go very deep in one particular subject, but you'll become narrow in another way because many questions don't have, they have different answers depending upon what the context is. Uh, so, you know, for today, we're talking about subsidies. And of course, there are economic answers to questions, but uh, but economics takes place in a context of also nations and communities and things like that. So you can you can get different answers uh, depending on what discipline or what subject you're you're talking about. And it's wisdom is really the capacity to to understand that there, that the different answers that you might get when you ask a question from one discipline might be different uh, than the questions, than the answers you would get if you asked the question in another discipline. And you really have to look at, at life as a whole. So my program is interdisciplinary. We look at things um, from, from the standpoint of uh, philosophy and theology and history and politics and literature, and with the aim of developing that kind of a mind that's flexible and able to, to actually act in the real world, where not everything is divided up into economics or history or something like that, but we have to actually 
make decisions based on, on reality. Which certainly seems to fit with real life. I mean, I, I know my life is not divided into these neat, precise categories, but really right. it seems like each day everything that I've studied comes to bear to help shape me into a person who makes certain decisions in a day-to-day kind of moment. Oh, That's, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. Well, let, let, let's get into the heart of it. Uh, we're, we're here tonight to discuss Resolve. The United States ought to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. Well, Dave, what, what, what are your initial thoughts about this resolution? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting question, but as I said, it's going to have different answers depending on, upon, uh, you know, which, which question you're talking about. If you're talking about from a strictly economic perspective, I think that there are many arguments uh, for getting rid of, of almost all subsidies <laughs> for specific industries. Uh, but there might be different ones if you if you ask the question from a political standpoint. So, uh, you know, many people will get different answers depending upon whether they're thinking politically or economically, or depending upon how they read the question of what the what the externality is. Those things that uh, those aspects of economic interactions that really aren't ac- accounted for um, with with just looking at the basic acts of the passing of money and the passing of goods or services. So, so I think it's, it's a question that I'm, it's not clear to me that I, I'm completely resolved in my mind as to what the answer is. Uh, I'm still thinking about it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what's remarkable about debate is that it brings out the different aspects of the question. Uh, it, it's, that's, that's completely true. I think every time I've gone to judge a debate tournament or I've helped my students prepare cases, it seems like I learned just how complicated an area is, and then I, I I usually have some sort of personal conviction about the resolution that I'm trying to set aside to be a good judge. And but then when I get into a round, it's it's easy to judge bad rounds. But then you get into a round where both sides present compelling evidence and they execute their techniques flawlessly. Those are the really tricky rounds, and they they usually end up making me think about the issue a lot more. Uh, I mean, I think you're very, you're, you're very much correct that it's often easier to identify really bad arguments than it is to decide among competing good arguments. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that we judge things, you know, based on our own particular take, which might be more, you know, as I said, more political or more economic or more from a standpoint of, of ecology or something like that. And so it really does make you think, oh, yeah, these are, these are complicated questions. Well, let's let's get into a little bit more specifics then. Uh, I, just to make sure we cover the basics, uh, and, and I, I, debaters who have been long-term debaters, some of them may groan if they're still with us this far into the episode, because uh, if they're good debaters, they've already uh, they're they're a week into the debate for this resolution. They will have done the definitions. But I've judged enough rounds where I, people don't actually understand the terms of the debate. I want to make sure we cover the basics. What exactly is a subsidy? Yeah, well, a subsidy is essentially uh, either a direct or indirect payment or benefit to individuals or businesses, and we're usually talking about subsidies coming coming from governmental entities, and that's what I think we're talking about with this resolution. Um, so, uh, you know, a subsidy is a payment to them. So we're asking the question with regard to fossil fuels, uh, are any direct payments that are made to them under different programs or more likely um, indirect uh, tax benefits that are available to fossil fuel companies uh, that are basically main, uh, used to support them. is uh, That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a subsidy. 
Well, I know subsidies come about for a variety of reasons, uh, and at least most of the Austrian economists that I'm familiar with, Hayek and uh, von Mises are the two that I'm thinking of here, uh, they, they do not speak very positively of subsidies. So I am curious about your thoughts. Are there times when a subsidy would could make good economic or political sense? Or are the Austrians mm. right? And this is always some sort of market intervention, market interference, some sort of mm. distortion of the right movement of the free market. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument uh, from their standpoint is that basically, pri- you know, prices – uh, convey information about what you know what is needed or wanted when it's when we're talking about basically um, any sort of scarce good or or service and so subsidies that are meant to sort of prop up one business or help one one business or protect or one particular type of business are themselves interfering with what prices tell us about what's needed or what's really wanted. So, uh, you know, that's why they say this is an intervention, and we really don't know what the trade-offs are. When it's a sort of a pure uh, commercial uh, interaction, you can kind of know what the trade-offs are when you pay, you know, when you're buying this sort of product. But when it's subsidized from a third party, particularly the government, then you're not as, as apt to think about these things. And not only that, but there's a tendency when, you know, a government will want to subsidize things that it thinks are good, uh, but what that sets in 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 uh, motion is uh, you know a process whereby other people say well but uh, but our products and our industries are good too you need to give us money uh, and then you basically turn you know the the, the good aspects of a, a market economy into one that is clawing at the government for money and of course the government doesn't have its own money it's it's it gets money by taxing us. Um, so, so I think generally speaking, the the Austrian arguments are are generally correct. They say, well, if you give money to uh, to a business, number one, it's often connected to price controls and propping up a business. So what you end up with is, as with sugar subsidies in the United States, we end up paying more for sugar than than the world market prices. So because the government ends up buying up sugar that's not bought because. If, People can get it much cheaper on the world market, or they create uh, products that really aren't wanted at the price. And one can think about many of the uh, the subsidies for, for instance, electric cars that used to. Mm. Some of them have now sunsetted the Teslas. Um, those actually, you know, went to very expensive cars, and only very rich people were doing them. So there was a sort of inequality aspect to this too. That uh, people who could afford these things. We're given, you know, seven or eight thousand, or however much the uh, the subsidy was, uh, by virtue of the government giving a subsidy to the to the companies to offer them at a cheaper rate. Um, so I, I I think from uh, from a purely economic standpoint, I think generally speaking, these things are not are they lead to bad things and they often uh, have very bad outcomes. Um, the argument for them is that, well, there are things such as, that are called market failures. There really is a demand, but there's no capacity for it. So we need to prop up a particular industry. Uh, and then we'll create a kind of equilibrium in the market by propping up that company. Now this, this is a, this is a tricky argument because how, you know, how does the government actually know what really needs to happen and what really is a market failure and what, what really is just the regular, work of the market. Um, 
But from a, a standpoint of uh, a political aspect, sometimes you want to prop up a, a product not just because it's uh, not just because it's favored, but perhaps because there's a political reason. So one might make the argument that if 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 uh, if it were to come down to the case that we would prop up the the production of certain sorts of electronics and certain sorts of uh, you know internet type products that would keep uh, keep these things in our own hands rather than giving the Chinese a technology advantage or the capacity to, to develop economic imperialism, well, that might be a market distortion, but it would be worth it from the political side. So it's, you know, there, the economic arguments, I think, are perhaps not as strong, but perhaps non-economic arguments might be made better for, for subsidies uh, for, you know, basically non-economic but political reasons. That's uh, honestly, that's incredibly helpful because one of the biggest struggles that I know my team has had on this resolution is like, how on earth do we argue the negative side? I mean, mm-hmm. who's going to argue to subsidize fossil fuels? I, I, I don't know your stance on climate change, but yeah. that, that immediately becomes one of the big arguments on the affirmative team has access to say, oh, fossil fuels are clearly contributing to climate change. When we're subsidizing them, we're incentivizing the destruction of the environment. And then the neg is kind of left with like, well, what, what, what can neg argue? So I think that's, that, that advice to kind of look at a political argument, or look at it from a different angle, could be very yeah. helpful for neg. Yeah, and I mean, look, this is, this is what I, you know, for, for, for that argument, uh, for keeping these these fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, part of the reason why they came about, particularly some of the ones that started in the 80s, uh, were basically to give America energy independence so that we weren't dependent upon a very fractured and, and fighting Middle East and various other countries uh, that, that, you know, we've, we've ended up in several wars with. So, there, you know, that's, that's, a, that's the kind of political argument, I think, for fossil fuels is that, you know, what this has done is this has allowed us to actually detach ourselves from some of the more complicating, uh, you know, entanglements that we've had in foreign policy. Could you walk us through some of the specifics there? I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with the fossil fuel subsidies you're referring to. You said the 1980s. Uh, and how, how, does the, how do those fossil fuel subsidies help us have greater energy independence? Well, I mean, the idea is that if we can, if we can stimulate production by helping our own companies uh, you know, get get fossil fuels, then we don't have to buy them from the the OPEC countries, which had a kind I of uh, death grip, <laughs> a death grip on us in the 1970s. Um, so, you know, there aren't that many there aren't that many direct subsidies that are left. Actually, the Obama administration um, helped sort of end uh, some of the ones that were that were active. Uh, but we do, do we still do have a few of them that allow companies to de- deduct um, most of the costs from uh, from drilling new wells in the United States. That's probably one of the biggest ones. Um, it, you know, people who say we could get I mean, and this is an argument for for getting rid of them, right? Is that well, you know, this could this could result in trillions of dollars of of, uh, of revenue in taxes, and this could really help the country if we did that. Um, there's also one that allows. Uh, there are some accounting ones in the the U.S. Uh, you know code that uh, allow basically uh, companies to deduct 
um, quite a bit of their cost from their taxable income, sometimes in, in cases that basically they're, bas- they're basically able to get rid of almost all of their, their tax burden. Um, there are some that are for um, fossil fuels that are for clean coal, mm. um, and these are tax credits that are given. Uh, you know, so one thing you might say is, well, well, you know, we don't need to get rid of all of them. We just need to get rid of the ones that, uh, you know, are for, uh, you know, are, are indistinguishable as to perhaps dirty sources of fossil fuels and those that are clean. Um, so those are basically the the the, uh, the direct subsidies um, that are active at this point. Um, there are some indirect ones that have to do with with accounting. Um, and such that, uh, so there's one called last in, first out accounting. And this allows oil and gas companies to, to sell the fuel that they've most recently added to their reserves uh, first. Uh, and that way, uh, that way they can get rid of the, the uh, most expensive reserves first. And then that reduces the value of the inventory they have, which basically reduces their tax burden as well. Um, then there's a couple other. There's a foreign tax credit that many oil, co- oil and gas companies use um, when they pay royalties abroad. They can deduct those on their taxes. Um, there are some structures. The IRS has a uh, master limited partnership. Perhaps people have heard of you know other of these sorts of things. You know LLC limited liability corporations. Well, this the MLP, the master limited partnership. Um, allows oil and gas companies to structure themselves in this way so that they have the investment advantages of a publicly uh, traded corporation, but they have the tax benefits of a partnership. Um, and then there, that's, that's pretty much all we have right now. And I, I've taken my, my list uh, from, from a group that's, that's largely for getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies and uh, it, it's called the uh, the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. It's a, a nonpartisan uh, group that uh, that provides information. They're I mean they're nonpartisan, but they seem to be pretty much against uh, fossil fuel usage. So we have a number of these things that are in there. But one might say, well, perhaps we shouldn't get rid of all of them, but maybe we should we should uh, we should put a, a premium on uh, on those that will actually do cleaner fuel. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, and that that really that that sounds again like it could be a a way of or neg to come back and say, okay, well, maybe what we need to do is redirect some of these to encourage cleaner fossil fuel usage. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you a different question about the definition. Still on the definition of subsidy, because um, sure. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we got uh, my co-host Ethan and I got to have uh, Dr. Joseph Aldi of. Uh, the uh, Harvard Kennedy School on to discuss the same resolution. And he brought up a definition that still sort of, I'm still puzzled by because Mm -hmm. the definition of subsidy that you gave us is the definition that I'm familiar with. And this is from a high school economics class years ago. Uh, But that, that is literally either through some kind of benefit that's given, you have the indirect subsidy or literal cash given to a company, a direct subsidy. He explained that one way that economists, particularly through the International Monetary Fund, calculate the uh, something like $500 trillion of global fossil fuel subsidy is through assigning a value to 
the pollution that is produced in and then the cost of health care benefits and lower quality of life that's assessed because of fossil fuel consumption and that they count all of that as a subsidy. Would you yeah. agree with that as a legitimate definition of a subsidy, or, or why or why not? What, what are your thoughts well, there? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is sort of like the claim that, uh, well, I mean, this is one of the things that people are going to disagree with, you know, is a, is, a, is a tax break really an expenditure on the part of the government, or is it simply allowing you to keep the money that, that you had? Um, you know, and so in this case, we're counting an externality, a thing that has been omitted from the calculation, uh, that is not, you know, that's not wrapped in. And so the IMF is saying, well, we can actually, we can actually assign a monetary value to all of these things like pollution and healthcare, and then assign, uh, you know, assign them to a particular cause, which is the use of fossil fuels. I, I think this is a, I think that that's actually somewhat sneaky, and it's also not very reliable because it's very difficult. To calculate what you know, what what the uh, the healthcare costs that are involved, um, these are all due to fossil fuels. I find that very difficult, except in very particular cases of cities that have very high levels of pollution. I mean, you might think of Shanghai or Beijing or something like that. Um, but overall, I find that 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 a very difficult uh, difficult thing to swallow. The idea that these externalities can be calculated. But if you're going to do that, then you'd have to actually then calculate other things like, you know, energy independence that, that is gained uh, if, if, uh, if a subsidy does help an American company to produce more and, and lessen our independence. Uh, because then you could say, well, you know, this, is a, this would allow us to, to uh, basically spend much less on, uh, on foreign wars and things like that, which often have to do also with protecting our relationships with, with oil producers. So I, I yeah, I don't I don't know if I, I think that's a I think that's a very sneaky way of defining. I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong, but I think it's it has a lot of uh you know it has a lot of uh possibility for for misuse and I think it would be it would be very difficult to actually assign monetary values to these things. And and you know this is also going to go into the question of um, well, you know you know it's very difficult to assign what is the real uh, cost of climate change, um, even assuming that there has been a sort of growth, uh, a rising temperature that is attributable to this. Um, part of that is, is, you know, has to do with healthcare. People die more in cold climates than they do in warm ones, and you can produce more, <laughs> produce more crops in a warming climate than you can in a cold one. So that's why now we have, you know, we have we have all sorts of places that before, uh, you know were perhaps not able to produce as many crops or capable of doing this. So how you would fit all that in strikes me as a difficult, difficult thing. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I had not thought about if you're going to count those. I like that word externalities. If you're going to count this externality of pollution, then it does make sense that you also need to value in some way the externality of you know, something about the geopolitical state and energy independence right. as well. Yeah. Now that... That that seems to be pretty helpful because I think you you've outlined some really helpful arguments on the negative side that we'd not previously thought about. Uh, what what arguments do you see on affirmative um, to to really get rid of these subsidies? Yeah. Get rid of these subsidies. Well, I, mean, I mean, like I say, the basic economic argument I think is is accurate. Um, that you know these subsidies, 
you know, maybe are justifiable on the basis of, of a sort of political consideration. But, you know, like, you know, the damage that is done by subsidies, uh, namely in terms of having people more, more addicted to, uh, to uh, government largesse, um, to, you know, uh, the, what Lady Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of England, in the uh, late 70s and 80s, that, you know, called it opium addiction, addiction to other people's money. Um, you know, that, that's one that I think is true. And, and for people who are, who are in favor of freedom in markets, um, whether you particularly like a company or not, um, there are definite benefits that are, that are given, and it encourages a sense of crony capitalism. Um, then the other, you know, the other things, there's things that you've already outlined, is that many people do believe that fossil fuels are, you know, are, do have a sort of a cost in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, of pollution. Um, you, know, to, you know, to go back again to the other side, um, you know, what's the cost of, of particularly backing away from oil and natural gas the difficulty with that is what people end up with is coal. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you might think about, well, you know, these things might be bad, but what are the alternatives? Burning coal? Burning dung? <laughs> I mean, the, you know, these don't have very good, excuse me, ecological or environmental considerations either. And one thing you might, you know, here's another aspect of this, is again, oil and gas companies in the United States have largely uh, shifted to natural gas uh, in many cases, um, and natural gas actually burns much cleaner than do most things, and that accounts for the fact that you might have have some students look this up, but all of the studies that I've seen from the EPA and others have shown that the United States over the last few years has reduced its carbon emissions, and part of that comes from from our uh, from our fracking and from uh, natural gas. So that you know, that's that's another aspect to this as well. I think that's really interesting. I think one of the things that I saw on uh, one uh, list of kind of potential negative arguments was put up by Champion Briefs Institute uh, was looking at the. Uh, they looked at some of the same dat- data that you were just re- referencing. The United States is reducing the has reduced their carbon footprint substantially. Yeah, but then to eliminate for the United States to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels is really meaningless in the face of global pollution. I mean, so without India right. and without China basically right. making uh, reciprocal agreements, this is really a meaningless statement because we've already reduced our carbon emissions substantially, and theirs have that's only right. risen. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing is that in in certain ways the. Uh, the the ecological side of this question is somewhat meaningless because we could continue to do this and as long as other countries are not are not actually moving to these to you know moving moving in this direction it's not going to work i mean i you know i think the difficulty with this is germany is another country that has has experimented they've had a lot of subsidies for you know so-called renewables and and green energy um, wind and things like that. Unfortunately, the difficulty with wind and solar and all of these is that they're not really reliable right now unless you can tap them into a source of energy that basically can keep going. Mm. So, in, you know, it, in other words, it, as long as you have something that's reliable, like fossil fuels, 
Then, as you get the renewable energy, you can sort of patch that into the system, but to avoid having economies shut down, which then causes both economic and, and environmental damage, too, um, you, you have to kind of put them into the system. Germany had all these sorts of things uh, that, were, uh, that were moving towards this green energy, and now they've had to back off because it's created so many shortages. And, I mean, this hasn't, we haven't even brought up the fact that, you know, really nuclear power is, is <laughs> if, you know, if our problem is, is environmental, nuclear power really is the way to go. So, you know, <laughs> you might ask, what would be the exchange? I think you know nuclear power would be a great a great idea for many people. So I, I think there's some great material for good argument potential there, and uh, I, I would love to see some some good uh, cards to cut for what would this look like if we replaced a fossil fuel system, particularly for our electrical grid, with a yeah. nationwide chain of nuclear power plants to really bring our electricity into the 21st century, and and I think that that creates all kinds of other impacts. As long as you can control for the fact that every judge who hears that argument is going to initially think, oh, my, Chernobyl is going to be in my backyard. Yes, yes. No, I mean, in order to make this argument, you have to have a lot of facts about what really happened at Three Mile Island and what happened at Chernobyl and what the real rate of, rate of accidents is and what really happened at them. Because I think the, uh, you know, the, instant, the instant response for most people is you know, sort of nuclear winter or uh, perhaps Homer Simpson causing some <laughs> sort of meltdown in Springfield or something. But I, I think that the reality is that in all of the reading that I've done on nuclear power, it's, it's actually fairly safe um, if you keep it up. It, Germany actually was running a lot of – Germany and France were running a lot of nuclear power plants up until a few years ago when there was an accident at a Japanese nuclear, nuclear plant, and then they kind of panicked about it. And I, I don't. I don't think that that was actually worth it. Uh, the, you know, the, the the question is, how do you make these things safe? Not how do we get rid of this? Because, like I said, Germany has backed off in the last few years, and now has been relying upon coal again. And that's actually a dirtier thing than if they had, you know, just gone with natural gas. Well, it sounds like there could be great material there for if. Uh, so, if any any students listening, this this at least is my thought there that. Uh, if if AF makes an argument about we're going to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels so that we increase renewables and we decrease our carbon footprint by somehow solving for climate change and all of these different impacts, there could be a really – you just gave us some really great material to uh, de-link that argument to disconnect the uh, the warrant from the impacts because if those – if that connection is not nearly as strong as teams assert – then really affirmative teams would lose their impacts, and that's going to give better ground to the negative on this on this case. Right, right. Oh, well, uh, uh, Dave, I, I, I would feel amiss if I didn't at least also uh, try to tap your uh, Catholic studies position as well. Um, are, I, I am not terribly well-versed in Catholic social thought, but I, I know it's a very broad uh, body of literature that, that touches on most things, um, does Catholic social thought have uh, particular principles or suggestions to contribute to a discussion on subsidies for fossil fuels? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, there's a whole lot of specifics on subsidies uh, for fossil fuels, but there has been a, a, a more of a conversation, particularly in the last fifteen or twenty years, about thinking about integral ecology and thinking about how you actually 
you know, how you, how you create uh, a homeland. And, you know, this is, I always use the term ecology, comes from oikos, same root, you know, economy comes from, which means our home. Um, so uh, thinking about our home, how do we actually uh, balance the, the desires to be able to have enough energy with also keeping the keeping keeping our home clean and 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 well used and i think there's a number of a number of uh you know different principles that are involved um one of them i think that's very helpful is is the general term of solidarity of thinking about how our actions affect others um and i think you know and this this has entered into our conversation um, you know, well, you, clearly we want to uh, limit pollution and we want to limit carbon emissions if they, if they are indeed causing, uh, you know, the climate to change in different ways. Um, but we want to think about other people as well um, who actually have a need for power uh, because power provides the capacity for them to actually improve their lives and improve their health in ways that that we've already experienced in the developed world. But the other one is subsidiarity, which is another one of the main principles of Catholic social thought, which, uh, which basically says that the decisions for things ought best be left at the proper level of decision-making. And I think, uh, you know, the, the United States has made many decisions. Um, many of the, both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists thought of the states as a kind of laboratory uh, you know, such that uh, you could have a diversity of approaches. And I think you see uh, states like Texas and others that have experimented with, with newer forms of fossil fuels and fracking um, have provided a, a better place than those that have perhaps tried to, tried to get rid of those things like California. So, so Catholic social thought, I think, you know, kind of agrees with that approach uh, in terms of the, the subsidiarity. I guess uh, at least for our, our listeners, may uh, I don't know quite when we're going to drop this episode. I suspect it'll be next week, so probably November 11th or so. But at least when we're recording, we're within a week of California having extensive brownouts again of having just yeah. a failing electrical system. I think the best meme I saw about that was, a, or maybe it was a, more of a comic. I'm sometimes unclear about what's a meme now and what's a comic, right. but anyway. Yeah. It was a uh, it was a farmer who was stretching a, an electrical cord across the line into Nevada <laughs> from California, yeah. and he was going to get his electricity from Nevada because he was not there was none left in California. Uh, That's right. <laughs> it's I mean it's a sad thing. I mean California was the land of promise. My you know I have an aunt and uncle in the Bay Area. They moved there in the early fifties. Oh wow. My, my, my 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 wife's grandparents moved to uh, San Diego right after World War II. You know, beautiful place. It was a, a a golden place, and now unfortunately, it's starting to resemble Venezuela in too many d- different ways. So, oh, we we um, I, I know one of my colleagues has been uh, quite frustrated with watching. Um, uh, particularly, there's a we we recently had a faculty roundtable discussing Seattle's. Uh, math ethnic studies framework that they're they're piloting or they're they're currently in the public proposal stage and uh just on the tail of that apparently there's a uh california public school that is suing uh the california university system for uh racial bias in their college admissions processes because they use the sat and act and it just it's just frustrating to see sort of uh uh, really a lack of reality in in the way governance is occurring there. Yep. 
Uh, yeah, well, it's, um, it's we live in crazy times, you know, or <laughs> or interesting times, as the Chinese curse had it. That, that's it. That's it. Well, um, I, I I think that that I that this this has been a wonderful conversation that covers really far more than I really expected. I I appreciate so much how much you brought to this this resolution. These have been some very helpful thoughts. Um, I wonder if we could kind of wrap this up on with uh, at least thinking about your most recent article on the imaginative conservative. Uh, that was one entitled Woke Capitalism, and it's not something that we've talked about on this show yet, uh, but it is something that I suspect will be increasingly a focus. Uh, I could easily imagine a debate resolution that is considering something to the effect of resolved uh, companies ought to focus only on the bottom line, or mm-hmm. or maybe the con- the opposite position would be the affirmative side. Companies ought to embrace a certain moral stance in their business endeavors. And so I, I could see that in the future. And I was I was struck by this line in your uh, your article where you say, uh, "To be woke is not to simply get rid of national or marital limits, as Mister Howding seems to believe." It is not libertarian or even freedom-oriented. It is to establish a new sort of orthodoxy. Uh, what, what do you mean by a new orthodoxy, and how, how does that connect with this phenomenon of woke capitalism? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it a sort of a view of the human person that is uh, that has been has arisen over the last few decades. I, I think it comes largely from the cultural left. Sometimes people call it cultural Marxism, or they have different names for it. Some people. Um, the Polish, the Polish political philosopher and member of the European Parliament, Richard Legutko, in his book *The Demon and Democracy*, simply says it's liberalism per se, which creates a new set of, of, of basically dogmas about the human person. You can see it in various ways. Uh, they often res- revolve around race, gender, class, um, uh, you know, sexual orientation, various topics, and they are. Basically, dogmas that now are, are you are not free to discuss or to disagree on, and that's that's what I think the the uh, woke capitalism is is all about. It's imposing a certain sort of orthodoxy about this. If you believe that marriage is really uh, is really a relationship between a man and a woman, this is sort of out. If you believe that uh, you know that uh, basically to be uh, to have social justice requires us to have more of a colorblind society. Well, that's out because you have to sort of endorse notions such as that that white whites have a privilege that's created by structural injustice, and that they are kind of tainted by that, and that other other people, uh, you know, by virtue of their own affiliation with a marginalized or oppressed group, have a sort of uh, <laughs> have a sort of higher higher place in the society. Uh, you know, all of these sorts of orthodoxies have been, kind of come upon us, and it's, it's, I think it's become very problematic and very, uh, you know, in certain ways we're seeing that, that aspect of kind of totalitarianism or at least authoritarianism, and it often comes from large corporations, um, which I guess it shouldn't surprise you. If you're a free market guy like me, Adam Smith warned about what happened when businessmen get together. It was usually not good for consumers or people in their area. <laughs> Uh, same with Milton Friedman. Many of these people warned that it's to be to be pro markets is not the same thing to be pro business, um, and and we're learning that many of these businesses are willing to uh, forge ahead, even if it means certain losses, in order to have a sort of commanding place in the heights of 
heights of culture and, and political life. Now that 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 reminds me of the uh, I think it was was Arizona that the uh, it was the, uh, the the Colin Kaepernick and the shoes and, and Arizona yeah. that was a that was a big issue recently. And it seems like this this whole thing is also somehow wrapped up in issues of uh, whether the Chinese Communist Party can in fact instruct the NBA in what it can and cannot affirm. Right. And yeah. what exactly? I mean, and I, I'm still trying to figure out what does that mean about our American obligation towards what 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 do we do as consumers or, or, or participants in some way, even if it's only through viewing. Of professional basketball, like how how does all that? But that seems like that's all interconnected somehow. Yeah, I mean, frankly, uh, you know, I mean, this is the thing is that the NBA has been, I guess, the the wokest of the professional sports leagues in terms of sort of promoting many of these new progressive ideals, and they've been willing to sort of you know sacrifice some business in places where people don't agree with them. But what's curious is with the with uh, China. They have been willing to basically, you know, silence themselves. Now they didn't. The uh, the Houston Rockets general manager uh, Daryl Morey, they didn't force him to uh, resign or anything like that. But essentially, they forbade the rest of the players from making any sort of statements. Whereas before, they had been willing to say, "Oh well, you know, we're willing to do this." And I think that signals something, right? That in this particular context in the U.S., um, they they feel free to sort of get with those who are in power. Uh, but, and, and that can mean sort of, you know, speaking heroically, so-called. But when they're dealing with another country, they're willing to basically shut people up. So it seems that the desire for power is greater than their real desire for, for money, I think. So, it seems I, so it's, bizarre. It's hard to understand. It really is. Well, doc, Dr. Duvel, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, oh, thank you. At, as a currently uh, teaching professor, do you have any uh, any advice for our students who are listening as they are considering uh, their college choices in coming years? Yeah, I mean, I, I would look for a place where you, uh, where you actually find people who are studying uh, a number of things, and they have they have a vision for education. Um, I think I think you said you were a Hillsdale graduate. They they have that sense that education is a real a, a real thing that has a shape and a consistency to it. And when you meet students there, or when you meet students in in the Catholic Studies program here at the University of St. Thomas, you get that sense as well that these are people who want to learn together, and they have a vision of education as developing that philosophical habit of mind and developing a real view of the world that will enable them to act as integrated human beings. So I would look for those kinds of communities, look for professors like that, look for students like that, look look for institutions like that as you as you look to college. That's great advice. Uh, Dr. Duvel, where, where can people find your work online? I mean, I know they, of course, can check out uh, the, the Imaginative Conservative and see your articles yep. there. Is, there. is there another place they can track your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on, I post many articles, at, you know, after the fact on academia.edu. Uh, so you, if, if, you, if you Google me, you'll probably find uh, some of those things. Uh, you know, maybe maybe not Google. Maybe you should use DuckDuckGo, <laughs> a company that's less woke. Um, but that's what I use, DuckDuckGo. But uh, uh, but yeah, look for any of those. And I, like I say, I have several sites that are going, uh, and then at regular columns at the Imaginative Conservative uh, and elsewhere. So, 
Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight on this very special episode of What's the Res? It's been my pleasure to host Dr. David Duvell uh, for this conversation about uh, the November-December LD resolution that resolved the United States ought to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. We'd love to hear from you if you want to give us some feedback about this episode, if you liked it, if you didn't like it. Uh, we, we take flames. We, we take them all. You can email those to us at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and leave us a review, preferably a five-star review. Uh, and that's the best way to help other people find our show. We're also on uh, various social media platforms. We're on uh, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram with the handle at what's the res underscore. You can also find us on Facebook at www.facebook slash what's the res. And just in case you're like us, uh, Ethan and myself, and can't get enough debate in your life, then uh, uh, head on over to what's the res.podbean.com slash premium, where you can find our premium episodes. Each month we release one recorded debate where we Call, we call these real debates by real people, where folks who are not educated experts in the topic have a an, about an hour-long debate, and uh, we, we leave it to you to decide who you think won that debate. Uh, but of course, you do have to be a subscriber to access those. You can do that for $3 a month or $30 a year. And uh, we hope that you enjoy What's the Res. We appreciate your continued support. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Music